You're listening to CRST, the podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Thanks for tuning in to the last episode of a special four-part series focusing on differentiating your cataract and refractive laser surgery practice. I'm Florian Kretz from Precise Vision in Germany. Joining me today are Kael Gunderson from Norway and Andrea Russo from Brescia, Italy. And today we're going to um, delve into the importance and advantages of adopting new refractive procedures and technologies. As a surgeon who offers presbyopia correcting IOLs and laser vision correction procedures, I understand the importance of offering a variety of solutions to meet patients' needs. I do favor IOL in some cases, but also laser refractive procedures for presbyopia correcting like presbyon for others. So, Kel, what lens-based refractive surgery procedures do you currently offer and why? Um, let's say uh, we, I'm um, using probably around 75% of my lenses are Alcon lenses. So the, 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 the lenses, the panoptics and the wave, um, The VVT is my main lenses in my portfolio. I have a long-standing uh, cooperation also with with um, Medicontur and and Physiol. So I'm, I'm, I have a variety of lenses that I, I try to use, you know, the custom-made uh, um, based on what the patient's needs are. Um, but that is, in short, my, my portfolio of lenses used for presbyopia correcting uh, surgery. And how do you differentiate if you're using a diffractive optic or rather an EDOF optic in your patients? Um, in Norway, we have a lot of, of patients or, or potential patients that are, are really active outdoor uh, people. And they might, uh, might uh, sacrifice the really close-up reading um, capabilities. Uh, in order to avoid any kind of, of um, dysphotopsias. So let's say their, their, their leisure activity, activities and their professional needs will influence my choice uh, um, regarding the potential side effects of the diffractive lenses that might. On the other hand, um, being active in this area for more than 20 years, I see less and less people uh, really uh, complaining of dysphotopsias based on the diffractive optics. Oh, I can only fully agree with you, and I have a similar system. I work a lot with the Lisa tree, but also with the Artilara, which are both diffractive optics based on a trifocal profile. And I think the patient counseling is the main point you need to address if you want to have happy patients. And if patients know what they are going to get and have an experience for that, they won't complain about their dysphotopsia and especially about their halos. So I think here the counseling process is really important to differentiate if you're going to use a diffractive profile or a, a rather refractive EDOF profile. Andrea, how's your experience with presbyopia correcting IOLs? Well, I started implanting in my career 10 years ago a lot of diffractive lenses ranging between panoptics and symphony, but the side effects were too many. So the short time in my practice used to be too invasive to my time. So I came up with the decision three years ago to stop using the diffractive technology. And nowadays, I stick to the EDOF technology to correct presbyopia, either in the cornea with the laser or in the bag with the lens. So my experience so far with EDOF lenses is mainly related to the 
refractive Alcon BVD or the aspheric ones uh, such as the JNJI hands. And of course, it's a compromise, as we all know very well. We sacrifice the vision close up to here, but you know that vision nowadays is not necessarily here, but it's here, the computer, the smartphone, driving, and with a zero to small compromise without having all those glares coming from the rings of the lens. So, so far, so good. And the good news was that my third time diminished a lot thanks to this technology. What I tried to do is also to induce a small amount of anisometropia, exactly as I do with the press beyond technology in the cornea. So we aim for plano for one eye, the dominant eye, but this is, this is not extremely important. It's important to create a small amount of anisometropia so you can extend the range from the infinity to, I would say, 40 centimeters. And still having some aberrations, these lenses, they create a blending zone. So it's a blended vision that can be achieved also with the new ease of lenses. So when we come back to the patient, as we all do several procedures, cornea-based ones like Presbyond, lens-based ones with diffractive technologies, but also with more later monofocal plus or EDOF technologies. Um, how do you identify which procedure might suit best for your patient? Kel, how would you look at your patient? We have, uh, let's say, we have learned the hard way that we cannot compromise on chair time ahead of surgery. So um, both the, let's say, all the instruments that we use in order to, to, to uh, do a thorough biometry, but on top of that, a really deep interview ahead of surgery, knowing the patients, what are their professional needs, what are they doing in their free time? And based on that, let's say, activity profile, we, we guide them into either, either A, diffractive uh, technology or EDOF or something in between. Uh, I, I didn't mention in the first uh, uh, moment that we are now combining diffractive and uh, EDOF lenses putting or, or implanting then, then um, uh, EDOF-based lenses in the dominant eye and diffractive trifocal in the non-dominant eye. This has, has turned out to be a very nice combination because you end up having almost zero dysphotopsias uh, reported uh, subjectively. Um, and then you have the, the broad range of optical performance that you get from both lenses. I was skeptical in the beginning to this combination, but it has turned out with now more than 150 patients that they are really, this is really nicely accepted by the patients. So again, to, 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 to the short answer, a thorough interview will guide you into either group A or group B or something in between. I like that mix and match approach and we have done that many times too. It's just, you always need a patient that understands that they can't compare the vision of one eye to the other and that they need to start seeing with both eyes. A little bit similar, like uh, it is in, in, in Presbyon, Andrea. So what are your key features or what questions do you ask your patients to identify if you go for corneal-based procedure or if you rather go for a lens-based procedure? Well, Florian, this is the question. So in our practice, the only rule is cataract. So in the absence of cataract, no matter the age, 
we stick to laser-based procedure. Otherwise, if there is any kind of cataract, of course, we go ahead with lens-based procedure. So the point is that cataract diagnosis is not always that easy. And you as a surgeon know this very well. It's challenging sometimes. So also for medical legal reasons, we rely a lot on equipment such as the HD analyzer or the eye trace because they give you the score of the opacity of the media. It's not really straightforward, but because there are, there are many reasons why the media are not transparent. Can be that your film, can be the cataract, might be the floaters in the vitreous, but if you have the score for a clear media, there is no cataract by definition. Otherwise, on the other hand, if the system tells you that there are opacities, these can be in the crystalline lens or in the vitreous or in the tear film, so you need to rule out. But if we have, let's say, 10 score for transparency in the eye trace or a low point for cataract in the HD analyzer, we go ahead with laser vision correction. Why? Because I believe that the quality of the natural crystalline lens is way higher if compared to the best monofocal lens out there. So in particular, if we, we create the compromise with the aid of technology or with the diffractive technology, the overall quality of the crystalline lens drops. So this is the rule we try to follow to distinguish between lens-based surgery and IOL-based surgery. I have patients in my practice that have clear media, but they demand a, a final solution. So they don't want lens-based surgery and they heard that there is, uh, they don't want corneal refractive surgery. They want lens-based surgery. They have heard about it. Many of them have friends that have good outcomes, even if they are older. So how do you counsel those patients? Are you able to switch them to a corneal procedure or do you continue with doing a lens-based procedure and tell them, uh, I know, uh, but I think this is better right now and in 10 years we do the lens. So how do you target those patients that have clear media? So good point. Yes, you're right. Sometimes uh, you meet patients uh, requesting a specific procedure can be IOL, might be SMILE or whatever, because they heard about it. So I'm kind of a dictator. So I explained the patient, this is the reason why I came up with this decision for you. This is the best surgery for you. And I explained what are the reasons driving my suggestion. Let's say better overall optical quality or maybe less night disturbances. So this is the best solution for you. And I would say that most of times they understand what is the point and they accept it. Of course, this is not a procedure lasting forever, but to be honest, there isn't any procedure which is lasting forever because you might also tune the astigmatism in IOL-based procedures. However, I try to explain what are the reasons behind my choice. I have actually, uh, um, since I'm not doing the, the, the corneal procedures um, anymore, I have some, let's say, control questions back to you guys. Uh, and that is uh, the presbyopia correcting population, so to speak, has a higher, uh, let's say, are in a higher risk fac uh, group 
or getting a dry eye problem later on because they are not 20 years old anymore. They are 30, 40, 50. Um, so one of the reasons why I, I, I grew, my skepticism grew a bit more was to the, the, the older group of, of potential laser-treated patients that might end up with a chronic dry eye problem. How do you handle that, uh, Andrea? And also uh, to you, Florian. To be honest, Kjell, that is a, a very good question. And it's a question that you have to address with every patient. But I do a lot of lens-based surgeries as well, also older cataract patients. And also my older cataract patients, even we work with small incisions, 2.2 millimeters, uh, or sometimes smaller, they also develop dry eye symptoms after the surgery and they have to be treated. Um, for me, the key here was if I have any findings regarding dry eye, and we check that in every refractive and every cataract patient, we counsel them straight away to start uh, intensive dry eye treatment with IPL or with Tixel always drops even before we perform a surgery and we rather re-evaluate them before we make a final decision, which is the right choice. Because you can get a, a dry eye in cataract patients, uh, even with standard IOLs that complain about dysphotopsia. And you do hard explaining them that it has nothing to do with the, with the lens, that it has to do something with the surgery and their age. And so I think it's very important to incorporate that already uh, in the beginning so the patient understands that it's not just glasses, it's not just opacification. Uh, your eye is an organ and your eye can suffer different diseases and different changes during aging. Andrea, what, what do you think? Well, I, I agree with you, Florian. So dry eye is the enemy for every kind of refractive surgery. doesn't matter if it's done in the cornea or in the lens. Think about uh, the diffractive IOLs. So if you have the perfect optical system with a perfect tear film, they work very well. Otherwise, they, it's another issue to be addressed. So we do exactly the same. We screen for dry eye before the surgery, no matter what kind of surgery. And we, in case we find any dry eye, we try to address it before the surgery. So the same, we offer IPL, we offer the, 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 you know, the, the lipid flow system. We try to combine together this technology to help uh, to relieve the symptoms and the signs of dry eye. However, we, of course, we induce uh, a transient period of dryness uh, with uh, laser vision correction, which is the same as with lens-based vision correction, but it's usually transient. And after a few months, they go back to normality, and we also might help them uh, with IPL or lipid flow technology. Yeah, same, it's exactly the same what we do. Kjell, you, uh, you do only lens-based procedures, but also phacic lenses. Do you have cut-off ages, or what do you do, if, for example, a hyperopic that is not suitable for uh, a phacic IOL, and uh, he's 45, and he starts to get his presbyopia on top of his hyperopia. So how would you target those types of patients? Based on my experience, the only sustainable solution for hyperopic patients, which we, we can really trust, is phacic lenses. But as you both know, there are too many that cannot have them because they have too shallow chambers. Uh, and, and of course, this 
the let's say the typical patients coming to you at the age of 40 plus 8 and plus 10 for instance uh, with an um, anterior chamber of 2.5 and a really they and they are con contact lens intolerant what do you really do i would say in those situations, I would uh, start discussing a lens-based uh, procedure. Uh, we do quite a lot of, of, of uh, uh, refractive lens exchanges, also clear lens extractions in, in, in my clinic. But we differentiate very sharply between hyperopic and myopic patients. So I wouldn't allow any myopic patients being operated before the age of 55 if they don't have a if they don't have a, um, um, uh, let's say we can see that they have a posterior uh, or um, oh, um, vitreous detachment, vitreous detachment, and um, so so that that would be the, the the key point. If they don't have that, I would say the risk of getting a retinal detachment is too high to to uh, to do the surgery at this time, and then I postpone it. Uh, it's it's quite different in the hyperopic population, and these patients, again back to the plus ten patient, is quite desperate. So a thorough interview, a thorough explanation of what we're doing, and being brutally honest about uh, um, what's what's in it, um, both from from let's say from from uh, complications, uh, but at the end of the day, the patient themselves has has to decide uh, decide whether to go on with surgery or not. But I, I'm not aware of any surface uh, treatment that can really treat a plus eight, 40 year old and, and, and end up in a success. I can only agree with you. And I have to say my youngest clear lens exchange patient was 26, was plus 10, because there was just no other option and there won't be another option, at least not a very close for him to see and he was very very satisfied i think we, if we if we these patients are really going to love you for the rest of their life more or less because you really it's it's not it's not a cosmetic problem it's really a practical and and clinical problem if you are contact intolerant and plus 10 then you are then you are disabled so to speak so so it's it's a tough problem for the patient and you have an effective uh, treatment and if you do it uh, well, then you end up um, with a win-win situation for both you and the patient. So I completely uh, agree with you, Florian. Andrea, you mentioned before that uh, you mainly do laser surgery when you have uh, clear media. And Presbyond is a procedure where you work with the spherical apparition uh, of the cornea. When the patient don't have clear media or are highly hyperopic, um, does the cornea or the corneal diagnostic and especially the spherical aberration play a role for you in the IOL selection process? Oh, well, for sure. So nowadays, uh, you know better than me, we have uh, thousands of patients that uh, underwent uh, laser vision correction in the past. They might be have treated with the press beyond or with other laser procedures, but they do have spherical aberration in the cornea. So. If you think that uh, the original cornea has a small amount of positive spherical aberration, which is about 0.27, if they underwent myopic vision correction, they have very much positive spherical aberration, let's say 0.8, 0.9, according to the diameter of the optical zone. 
And on the other side, if they underwent hyperopic vision correction, the amount of spherical aberration is low, is negative, is minus zero point something. So we try to take advantage of the already present amount of spherical aberration in the cornea and we adjust the lens that we implant according to the amount of spherical aberration we want to have after the surgery. So to be very schematic, uh, we have two sweet spots uh, we, where we want to land, which is positive 0 0.6, 0 0.7, or is negative 0 0.6, 0 0.7, because this is where we have the best amount of pseudo accommodation in the cornea. So we try to measure this spherical aberration before the cataract surgery, and we pick the right IOL to land in that territory. And nowadays you have a portfolio for companies such as Zeiss Company has IOL with either positive or negative or neutral spherical aberration. So we can pick the one we need to have the best uh, spherical the best uh, spherical uh, uh, aberration pseudo accommodation in this patient. And going back to the other argument, I totally agree with you guys. So I'm not happy to operate on patients with high amount of myopia before the age of 55. So I totally agree with you because we have risks. But as you said, Florian, hyperopia is probably the exception to this rule because in many cases we do not have any other options on the table. But patients are really happy, as you said. I fully agree with you, Andrea. And uh, I do have to say, I think taking spherical aberration of the cornea into account for any procedure, even if it's laser or if it's lens-based, is very important. And uh, even the mean value is around uh, plus 0 0.27. I do have patients with plus 0 0.4. And uh, I'm very happy putting an aberration neutral lens in there, giving them a slight monovision, and they have exceptional defoc binocular defocus curves after because you can use that spherical aberration in the cornea so well. Just in the case of diffractive optics, I always try to compensate it to get distinct focal points from the diffractive optic for those patients and reduce their glare level. Uh, Kjell, do you take care of the corneal aberrations, especially spherical aberration with your IOL selection? We try to address it as good as possible. Um, the lenses I use uh, do not have the options to, let, let's say, choose between different uh, spherical aberrations. So we, so we, 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 uh, we tend to end up in some some kind of compromise um, where we where we um, try to to get the best out of the lens, but we don't have too many uh, tools in our toolbox to 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 do so. Um, but based on the experience I had from when I did the the corneal procedures only five years ago, uh, I build upon that, and I completely agree with Andrea the the way um, this should be handled. Um, I would love to have more tools in my toolbox in order to do so, but at present we have to, to do the best we can. So, Kjell, because you already said you would love to have more tools in your toolbox, if you had a wish to the industry, what tool or what technology would you straight away implement in your daily practice for presbyopia correction? 
there are probably not one single uh, thing um, that I can come across uh, uh, right now, but all the, let's say, all the large manufacturers should offer different uh, spherical aberrations in their lenses. That would give us um, um, an, an, an option to, to deal with, let's say, both native eyes, but also previously uh, uh, laser-treated eyes uh, in a more professional and, and specific way. Um, as I, I do think that we have more or less um, utilizing um, ray tracing technology. We have overcome um, the biometric challenges coupled to, to earlier uh, laser treatments, but we still have situations where we have um, asymmetric um, aberrations in, in both eyes, and we, and we want to improve the visual quality as best uh, as good as we can, uh, as we can uh, for these patients, because the success of the procedure totally is the is the final optical quality that the patients will um, experience. Andrea, what would be your wish for a new technology or uh, a new procedure to bring your presbyopia treatment even further? Well. So far, we have been talking about uh, pseudo-accommodation techniques. So my wish would be to restore the natural accommodation of the lens. So ideally, the best solution would be a real accommodating IOL or lens refilling, kind of uh, something like that. Of course, this is still in the pipeline of the industry, but I know they are working on it because that's the only way to treat uh, presbyopia, which is, uh, to be honest, the holy grail in ophthalmology so far. Of course, I'm so thankful to the, the industry for the high quality lenses they provide us with. As uh, I said before, I love uh, the EDOF technology. I love the monofocal plus technology because uh, this is the lens that I would implant in my own eyes nowadays because uh, I, I never throw the needle. I, I usually use the computer or I use the smartphone and I believe that for uh, nowadays life uh, is more than enough to have a needle of lens. However, of course, my wish uh, is the real accommodating IOL, which is about to come. I, I couldn't agree more, Andrea, for all of us to have something that, that really could mimic the natural physio physiology. Um, I, I'm, I have another, uh, we did a, a, an interesting study almost 10 years ago because we went back to the people being not satisfied with the surgery. And they had all diffractive lenses. And let's say, I, I think it's, it's, it's not uh, only a myth that dysphotopsia uh, really destroys visual quality in these patients. But what we found was that 80% of those being dissatisfied was dissatisfied based on refractive, small refractive misses. So another thing that could be extremely useful for us is to have an adjustable or refractive adjustable lens, which could be adjusted um, at least the first three, four, five, uh, six months after surgery. Because in my case, there are two really big challenges. is to master the ocular surface ahead of surgery and after surgery, 
and then to be sure that we uh, that we have a refractive um, tar- as we we reach the refractive target not more than plus minus 0.5 and not more than 0.5 cylinder uh, that, can, that can be made with a laser or with the lenses, but if we had a chance to fine-tune this after surgery, that would be a, a nice tool to have. I totally agree with you. If I can add something, yes, of course, we have the same problem, especially if we do a little amount of anisometropia. So we want to have the eye for distance, which is plano and I mean zero, and the eye for near, which is, let's say, minus one with no astigmatism. Otherwise, we increase the compromise. And uh, to be very precise uh, is extremely important uh, either in laser vision correction or in IOL-based surgery if we talk about refractive surgery. So we want to be very precise, but uh, after IOL surgery, is uh, not rare that we do some LASIK enhancements for the patients because we want to be hitting zero target, uh, so zero refractive error after the surgery. In uh, the, the light adjustable lenses are available. You can fix uh, with laser the refraction of the lens after the surgery, but it's not really easy and it's very time consuming to fix the lens after a certain amount of time. So I believe that uh, in our portfolio, we want to have the OR to implant the IOL, but we must have the availability of a LASIK platform to fix the residual refractive error if we are talking about refractive surgery. So I totally agree with you that we want to give zero prescription to those eyes. I, I throw in something else for all the things you guys have said. I do agree you need to hit your refractive target, but I also have to say identifying the right refractive target is also depending on the procedure you perform. Because if you work also with spherical uh, aberration, the spherical aberration in the cornea can change your target because the spherical aberration also induces a dioptric uh, shift. So, uh, So that is things that have to be taken into account and you can't always say, oh, with this lens I target on... Uh, well, with all lenses, I target on minus one because some you need minus 0.75 and the others you might need minus 1.5 depend, depending on the initial cornea. And the other very important thing that I wanted to mention is, Kelly, you said before, the word asymmetry. The human optical system is everything, but it's not symmetric. And it's far from perfect. While all or nearly all implants that we have available now or procedures that we have available now are symmetric procedures. And if I had a wish, I would wish for an individual asymmetric procedure that suits the optical system of my patient to give him that like little bit better quality because you have it really aligned to the line of sight and you really equal out the different shapings of his retina, of his cornea, by giving them a laser procedure or on a lens-based procedure and enhancing the outcomes that we already have that are good. So I think going into this asymmetry and realizing patients don't have a perfect optical system, I think is something very important for the future. And especially when accommodating IOLs will come on the market, I think it will be even more crucial to fix that because like in a high hyperope with a high angle alpha, 
and you have a perfect uh, accommodating IOL, but the line of sight does not go through the center of the accommodation, the posterior and anterior surface of the new lens could basically distort uh, the light rays anywhere, creating even more glare than he ha would have had with a diffractive lens that at least you can rotate it a bit um, until he looks at least in most cases through the center. I think what you what you also touch upon now, Florian, is that if we aim for perfection, and we should, there will always be new challenges that we didn't know about before we we aimed at the stars. So so while we are, let's say, if we if we if we think twenty years back and we see what's happening in the last twenty years, today we are dealing with things that we didn't think about twenty years ago, and 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 becoming more and more perfectionists, new problems will probably also hit us and we have to think differently. So I think as, as clinicians, as scientists, we have to be open-minded and, 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 and humble uh, because the more we know, the more we also will know what we, know, what we don't know or, or the challenges lying ahead of us. Definitely. This, is more, this is more philosophy than clinicians, but, but clinical science. But we, we have to take that also into consideration. No, definitely. I absolutely agree with you. So we are already in the lucky position that we have many procedures and actually have a high rate of success with our patients. And there's always going to more to come to make it better. But I think each one of us also has some unhappy patients after the presbyopia correction. Andrea, what are your go-to tools to manage your unhappy patients? Oh, well, of course, uh, we do all have unhappy patients. Uh, well, it depends uh, on uh, what kind of uh, procedure the patient underwent uh, uh, to correct dysbiopia. So let's start from LASIK vision correction. So if the patient is not really happy after, let's say, presbyond, one of the main reasons is what we have been discussing before, namely uh, residual refractive error, which is the enemy for all the laser vision corrections. So we try, we easily do an enhancement. So we do a touch-up, it's very easy, it's uh, a three-minute procedure. And most of the time, the patient the day after is super happy, probably happier than the other ones because uh, you took care of him and now he is a happy patient. Or on the other side, if the patient underwent uh, IUL surgery and is uh, unhappy, probably the reason still is in the residual refractive error. But let's put it in another way. The residual refractive error is probably the only thing we can correct in those patients because we do not really have any other powerful tools in our hands. Of course, the only thing we can do is to remove the lens and to place a monofocal one. But since I've been using only monofocal plus or of lenses in the past three years so far, so I have never had to remove any lens from this patient. And this makes me to be more confident in doing this technology to the patient because believe it or not, they don't really complain. So maybe they complain because they don't have very near vision, 
but I explained before the surgery that if they needed to throw the needle, they still will need readers for very applause. But normal life is not threading the needle, so they usually don't really complain. So the the, the vast majority of my unhappy patient is related to presbyon technology, but there I have a room to improve uh, the, the situation. Kjell, how do you deal with your unhappy patients? First, I, um, my staff and, and, and myself try to analyze what is the reason behind this unhappiness. And again, we're back to two main reasons, either ocular surface, or rest refractive error. Both of them can be addressed, not necessarily 100%, uh, but at least if you if you find a rest astigmatism of more than 0.5, then you know that the, the efficacy of these lenses dropped dramatically. So this has to be addressed. I used to do laser uh, touch-up like uh, both of you. Um, when I using the laser, I turn out to, to, to use the add-on lenses to, to address this um, uh, issue. So I have a low threshold of, of putting in add-on lenses, which might, on top of, of, of fixing the rest refractive error, also contribute to less dysphotopsias. Uh, so there might be a win-win situation in, 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 in using that kind of technology. Rega regarding uh, the ocular surface, um, I do the same as you both have a very thorough screening uh, at the beginning. So if we find any sign, either subjectively or objectively, uh, of a compromised ocular surface, we, we, we turn them into a treatment cycle. If we are unable to normalize it, then we don't offer uh, surgery at all. But if this is done ahead of surgery, and we find that, that the condition has... Um, has uh, been more um, aggressive after surgery, then we have to be more aggressive with our therapy as well. So addressing refractive error, addressing ocular surface, in most cases, that will solve the problem. I would say we have, I've, I've implanted uh, multifocal diffractive lenses since 2003, and I've only explanted four lenses in my time. I think these patients can be handled by increased chair time, they, they, they might, you might see their name on your, on your patient list and you hate them or you hate, you hate the problem. But if you don't run away and, you, and you're patient, you're, you're able to talk them out of explanting because the, uh, putting in a monofocal will solve one problem, but it will, uh, will leave them with another problem. So they will never be completely happy with that option. I can only fully agree to the both of you. Um, I would just add the third patient group that you were just talking about, Kjell. You have the ones that didn't hit the refractive target. You have the ones that actually suffer a disease like dry eye. And the third group is just the one that you can't make happy anyways, whatever you do. And they are the difficult ones. And I had the same experience like you. I explanted my last diffractive lens in 2015 and the patient was not happy after. Then they were unhappy and uh, came back and said, oh, I want my multifocal lens again. Um, so uh, I think those are really the three groups. Two of them you can actually manage very well and you can make them very happy over time. And the third one, you will never be able to make them happy because they just don't understand that they are aging too. 
I think diffraction just needs more counseling so patients understand what it means. And if they don't understand it, then definitely an EDOF lens or an EDOF profile on the cornea, if you want to call it like this, is definitely a good option for those patients as well. Andrea, what advice would you give a clinician who is only doing cataract surgery with standard monofocal IOLs if they want to go in the field of treating presbyopia? Oh, well, so as we have been discussing so far, meeting patients' expectation is pivotal, which is very much tied to patient selection in order to have the best percentage of happy patients. So there is no perfect solution so far. So we have been discussing about the satisfaction rate after the IOL. And you know what? The satisfaction rate, if you look at the literature after the diffractive IOL, is reported to be around 90% for the newest generation of lenses uh, such as the panoptics. If you go back 10 years ago, the satisfaction rate with the previous generation that was uh, about the restore and resume lenses was 90%. And if you go back another 10 years, 20 years ago, with the first generation of diffractive lenses, such as the ones made by PMMA, the satisfaction rate, guess what, was again 90%. So our brain, this means that we are probably great doctors, great sellers, we explain a lot the side effects, but also this explains that our brain is amazing. Our brain can fix all the aberrations and all the side effects, all the halos coming from these lenses. So beyond the lenses, we have the laser technology and it's a pity to sacrifice the visual quality of a natural crystalline lens. So having a solution for those patients without cataract, I believe nowadays is mandatory. But another thing I would suggest uh, surgeons to do before replacing, before removing the lens, is a very technological procedure, which is using the ruler to measure the residual amount of accommodation in the eyes. You know, there is the ruler in front of the thoropter where you can measure the nearest point of accommodation. And you will be surprised because so many patients aged between 50 and 60 they can still focus up to 50 or sometimes 40 centimeters. So this means more than two diopters of residual accommodation. So it's a pity to waste to remove two diopters of real accommodation to be replaced with three diopters of pseudo accommodation. So for those cases of younger people, people without cataract, and especially people with residual accommodation, helping them to correct the refractive error on the cornea, plus giving them a small amount of pseudo-accommodation is a great result. So this is, I believe, a good reason to have both the technology in our portfolio. Kjell, you used to work with, uh, with lasers, but you stopped it. So what advice would you give a standard cataract surgeon if they are thinking about going into presbyopia correction with lenses and with lasers? How should they start? Or would you recommend they have to start with both to then identify what they feel more comfortable with? I think there is no 
standard answer to to to, to that question or those questions. Um, I think there. Um, at present, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually recruiting a colleague now coming from the public sector with 16 years of cataract surgery experience, and he wants to get into the refractive business. So let's say I, I have a, a perfect situation now where I have to, 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 to choose the, the, the way I want to train him. Um, and, and I think we can more or less demand that the technical standard of a colleague should be um, as close to perfect as possible. So they, they know how to deal with the, with, with the cataract or the lens-based surgery at all. So the, the, the secret in my mind is the preoperative interview, how to select the patients, how to understand all the compromises, the optical compromises, any kind of method will will uh, be because there are no perfect treatment at all so if you choose glasses if you uh, choose contact lenses or any kind of refractive procedure there will be negative aspects and positive aspects and to know as much as possible theoretically um, around this uh, um, uh, these items before you start counseling the patient so the, the whole can uh, counseling process is from my point of view, the key success factor in order to overcome that threshold being a cataract surgery, a surgeon to a refractive surgeon. It's it's two of a kind, but you have to you have to focus more on the patient's needs. I can only fully agree. And basically it's also what Andrea said before with his ruler test and how to identify what is right for the patient and why you are standing behind. Uh, your decision or your option that you want to offer to a patient. Um, Andrea, if you look at your own learning curves with working with lenses, with working with lasers, um, how would you describe your learning curve and how are your workflow steps in your daily routine now? Oh, well, it's a good question. So the learning curve, of course, uh, is the enemy at the beginning. So I believe that the learning curves are different uh, between uh, lens-based uh, correction and uh, LASIK correction. So I started earlier with LASIK because uh, LASIK is uh, an easy procedure, I, I mean, from the surgical standpoint, but it's uh, a most difficult procedure if you need to think about the corneal aberrations, how to manage potential complications. So the learning curve of the laser, of the LASIK, comes probably a little bit in the next phases when you need to face and you need to overcome complications. So having a mentor helping you, having a group of colleagues to share the cases with is mandatory if you wanna do laser vision correction. On the other side, Lens uh, surgery, IOL surgery, is uh, more difficult from the surgical standpoint. Uh, but uh, probably at the beginning, uh, at least, uh, I only needed an IOL master. So I believe that uh, the preoperative and postoperative time before and after the surgery was uh, less important at the beginning of my curve. Of course, now 
everything is so much interconnected. So once again, I believe that if we talk about refractive surgery, we need to have the ability of doing laser vision correction and lens-based surgery all together. So the two curves match and mix and match one with the other. So having a mentor, I believe, is mandatory. And another suggestion I would share with my younger colleagues is having someone more experienced than you next to you in the OR. This is the way I started doing cutters at the beginning because I had my own practice, but my experience with cataract surgery was limited by definition, was limited by my young age. So I used to have someone older than me next to me just in case everything needed his attention. So this is the suggestion I would like to share. I don't think there is much to add, Andrea, to what you just said. And I think it is very important to get advice and also to have somebody that you can always ask questions to when you need them and then that just can help you or guide you through the process and how to standardize your processes. Um, Kjell, what steps are important for you or do you use a very digital workflow? Uh, how do you manage your patient workflow in the OR to make it more safe and more secure? We have extended our, let's say, well, our instrumentarium over the last 10, 15 years. Um, I was very early on uh, recruiting um, highly skilled optometrists in my practice. Started with one in 2003, and now I have eight full-time optometrists working with me. So all the basic work ahead of the final interview is made by people that know about optics, know about what we're doing. So we haven't we haven't reduced the preoperative chair time at all over the last 20 years. <laughs> more the opposite. We are using more time ahead of surgery than we did in the beginning. So never compromise on the preoperative. That's my primary advice. Because everything you tell to the patient or, or inform the patients ahead of surgery can be regarded as something they know, something they can expect. If you wait until after surgery to tell them, it's a complication. So, so respect that, that you have a golden time ahead of surgery where you should, A, um, prior, or, or make your patient selection. But if you have ch chosen, uh, this patient is, is, is really uh, a good candidate for surgery, then you have to inform him or her even deeper into what to expect. If you can tune down the expectation and deliver, it's, it's, uh, that is it's also a, a nice advice to give because if they, if they, after surgery, experience more than they expected, then it's, it's, it's a, a guaranteed success, so to speak. But this is the hard thing about that is to understand and to, to, to see the different patient and, 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 and try to analyze them ahead of surgery. And this is, this is a lifelong uh, learning uh, uh, process, I guess. So again, advising young colleagues um, where to start. I don't think it's, it, it's too much about technology and, and uh, you might use lasers, you might use lenses, but really to address the importance of the preoperative uh, examination and interview and how to handle expectations. I think it is very, very important 
what you just said. And I have to say that were my biggest struggles when I went into more refractive procedures, refractive cataract surgery, refractive lens surgery, and refractive cornea surgery, but also handling the mass of diagnostic paperwork's input into your decisions and finding a way for yourself to identify what you believe is right for your patients. And personally, I'm very happy and very glad that most of that is now available digital and brought together for you. And it makes it very simple to solve those problems and making the counseling uh, time shorter, but also more efficient. Andrea, how, how do you manage with all the information, all the data you get before the surgery and implement it into your uh, daily work with your patients? Oh, well, this is a great topic. Uh, so I'm glad you put this question. So nowadays, uh, you will agree with me, we have so many data coming from all the equipment we have uh, in the office uh, that are wasted. This data is wasted. Think about the thousands of numbers coming from the Pentacam, coming from the MS-39, coming from the Verometer, from the IOL Master. So what we did was to digitalize everything and to create a cloud database where all the raw data coming from each equipment is going in real time, examination after examination. So when I see the patient, I have a screen, what I call a dashboard, where I can see all the most important parameters coming from all my equipment and they give me the surgical suggestion and the surgical alerts case by case. So we have running a machine learning technology. So the system itself is learning from the results and day after day, it improves the outcome. So Kel, how, do you, how did you learn to deal with all that amount of data and paperwork or do you also have a digital available now to make your work more efficient? I don't have the tools that uh, Andrea was talking about, uh, putting uh, everything on, on, a, on, a, on a dashboard, so to speak. But we have different sources of preoperative um, examinations uh, that are digital, and we, uh, and we plan uh, the, surger, uh, surger, uh, the real surgery uh, based on those. Uh, from, the, from, let's say, when we have decided this is going to be a lens-based uh, uh, surgery, we have access to different biometries. We can, we can finally choose the right lens that we want to do. Then from, from there on, we, um, we uh, digitally transform that to the surgical room. We have access to, to, to the um, toric axis and we implant toric lenses in almost 50% of the cases. So this really have um, revolutionized the, the speed of how to adapt to more advanced lenses. Um, we have only made a couple of steps into the real digitalization uh, of the surgical process. There is still room for uh, a lot of improvements to, to, to be introduced, but we have, we have, we have started, so to speak. 
thank you, Kjell. And I think that's a good time to wrap up because otherwise we could probably continue talking for hours about that topic. Thank you very much, Kjell, and thank you very much, Andrea, for joining me today. It was really great. I think we have all learned a lot about the benefits of incorporating a variety of lens and laser-based refractive procedures, especially for the field of presbyopia, but also about the challenges every one of us faces each day and possibilities and how to deal with those challenges. So I wish you all a good day and hope to hear you again soon. <laughs>